John 1, beginning in verse 35. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. John the Baptist is nothing if not consistent. Another day, the next day from last week's passage, and another moment of pointing to Christ. This time it will cost him two of his own disciples. And you know what? I think John is good with that. It wasn't long ago the investigatory committee came to John and wanted to know how he justified his ministry of preaching and baptisms. He could have said that he was the last of the great Old Testament prophets. He could have said that he came in the spirit and the power of Elijah, as God through Malachi had foretold. Instead, John simply pointed to Christ, the one who was greater than he. Yesterday, Jesus came to him to be baptized. He could have reveled in such a successful ministry. He could have used Jesus' coming to him for baptism to justify significant self-promotion. Instead, he submitted to the Holy Spirit, saw Christ for who he was, and pointed the world to him. Here the next day, John is still the same. Engaged in the work of ministry, he again sees Jesus coming toward him. And this time, the story focuses on two of his disciples who were with him. They're John's disciples because of the work of the Holy Spirit in them. They know by the Holy Spirit that John is of God. They know by the work of the Holy Spirit that what John says, his words are true. And so they listen to what he says and they follow it. And here John says, behold, the Lamb of God. John just does what he always does. He points to Christ. And to their credit, John's disciples do what they do. They believe him. They know his words are of God, and so they follow. Of course, now this means they will not follow John. They will follow Christ. And for John, this is no problem. They didn't know it, but this is always what John had been preparing them for. He knows, because he experienced it, that once someone sees Christ 
for who he is, all you can do is direct your life toward him. It's funny how on one level, it's that simple. Verse 37, the two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. It's that simple. Let's consider that simplicity. It is one side of the coin of encountering Jesus. If Jesus is who John says he is, if Jesus is who scripture says he is, what else could anyone do but follow? That simplicity is no less applicable in our day. Kids, there are a lot of people who want to say that Jesus was a good person or a great moral teacher or a wise man, but they still don't want to follow him. They want to acknowledge him. They want to give some kind of honor to Jesus on their own terms, but what they don't want to do is love him with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength, and therefore love their neighbor as they love themselves. The problem is, that approach doesn't make any sense. John called Jesus the Lamb of God, the Son of God, and Jesus didn't correct him. Jesus himself said that God was his Father. Jesus established the church on his own identity as the Lord of the church. Jesus claimed the power to send the Holy Spirit to his people After his ascension, Jesus said, I am God, not just a good teacher, not just a wise prophet. So if anyone looks at Jesus and thinks that he's not God, they should write him off as an egomaniac crazy man. They should not care what he says. Nothing that he teaches should get any attention. He should be paid no honor whatsoever. But if we do believe his claim to be God, then what should we do? The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. On one level, it's that simple. If Jesus is God, we have to give our whole lives to him. We can't believe that Jesus is God and then watch him from a distance or call upon him only when we need something from him. We can't take the one who called himself Lord of the Sabbath and say, well, that's okay as long as you leave us alone to do what we want on the other six days. On one level, following Jesus is a very simple thing. If we believe that he is the Lamb of God, we must follow him. There'll be a story we come to later in the Gospel of John when Jesus is teaching really hard things. And he asks his disciples if they still want to follow him in light of this difficult teaching. And Peter answers, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. In Luke's gospel, the first Jesus and Peter story that we have is the one where Jesus gets on Peter's boat. And after teaching for a while, he tells Peter to let down his nets again in the same waters that had failed to produce a catch all night And Peter does it, and James and John do it, and soon they find their nets overwhelmed with the size of the catch. And in that moment, seeing Jesus for who he is, the right response is simple. And when they had brought their boats ashore, they left everything and followed him. When you see Jesus for who he is, what else can you do? But admit it. The stories like that are a little unsettling, aren't they? We get 
in a rightly convicting way how simple it should be to follow Jesus. But we also believe that in real life, it's harder than that. We can't fathom. These these guys just gave up everything and followed him the moment they saw him? No, they didn't do that. The story in this morning's passage reveals that like John the Baptist, at least some of Jesus' own disciples saw him for some time before they really saw him, before they believed him. There will come a time for these disciples when they, like John, will have the scales removed from their eyes, and in that moment they will know that he is the Christ. But this is not that moment. In this story, they hear their teachers say that Jesus is the Lamb of God, and so they follow. Not follow as in become disciples. Follow like literally follow. Their curiosity is piqued. Jesus is walking. John points him out, and they just start following him to see what is happening. They know that John is probably right. They should become disciples of Jesus rather than John. But right now, it's this wait and watch and see. They're not all in yet. So they follow Jesus. That is, they walk in the direction he is walking. They're not zealous for Christ. They're tentatively curious. They're not certain that John is right. They're open to the possibility. And Jesus, seeing them kind of fall in line on the path behind them, turns and asks them, what are you seeking? They bring Jesus their uncertainty, their lack of faith, and their questions. And Jesus turns and engages with them. He doesn't dismiss them because they're not all in yet. He doesn't ignore them. He doesn't chastise them. He engages them. What are you seeking? What a question. It's one that works on two levels. One is a pretty direct, superficial level. What do you think will come of following me? You were standing over there, and now you're walking in the direction that I'm walking. What do you think is going to happen? What do you hope to see or find by following me? And the second level of Jesus' question is much deeper. It's the question asked one way or another to all who encounter Jesus Christ. What are you seeking? What about you? What is it that you really want in life. All who hear his teaching will come to learn that there can be no half in with Jesus. It's all in or nothing. And considering their uncertain tentative start to following him, it's a reasonable question to ask. It's a question that penetrates into the human soul. What are you seeking? There are a lot of possible answers to the question. Many are seeking power and control. Listen to their words. Look at their actions. Others, money and the luxury that it buys. Some seek health and longevity, that sense of control over the length and the quality of their lives. Still, for many, legacy has become the buzzword. They want to do good deeds and build up name recognition and garter the kind of attention that will survive even their own death. What are you seeking? Now, don't feel bad. At this point, the disciples aren't sure either. So they change the subject. 
And they said to him, Rabbi, where are you staying? They just aren't sure how to answer. Are they really supposed to pour out their deepest desires and spiritual longings and questions at this point? They aren't, they aren't sure. So they answer this profound question with a mundane one. Where are you staying? Now, it's not a bad question. They want to follow Jesus. Maybe not forever, but definitely for now. They've started following and they don't even know where they're going. And so they're asking in a way, where, where are we going? And if they know where he's staying, they'll be able to find him again without following him every moment. They're still uncertain. They're curious, but not convinced. They don't answer Jesus's question. And they ask him one that's, well, something less than profound. And in that context, how amazing is Jesus's answer? They sidestep his question. They are keenly aware of all the baggage and the uncertainty and the questions that they're bringing into this potential relationship. They change the subject. And how does Jesus answer them? Come and you will see. Another pastor writes, Jesus' simple response doubtless delighted the Baptist disciples. It constituted the beginning of their intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. It's an incredibly encouraging moment for them, and if we pay attention, also for us. Jesus knows that no one can seek him or see him apart from the Spirit's work. And so no matter how feeble our response is to that work at times, he receives it. He invites us into greater fellowship with him. Maybe sometimes you feel like an outsider with Christ. You look around at a group of Christians and you wonder if you'll be found out. After all, they're all obviously so strong in the faith, such fervent followers of Jesus. And you, you're just you. But do you know who Jesus invites into a deeper relationship with him? You. And people just like you, people like these proto-disciples. We learn here that one of them is Andrew, Peter's brother. And the other, though not named, was most likely John, the author of this gospel. These two accept Jesus' invitation to come and to see. And so they spend the day with him. Perhaps in that time they asked better questions. Perhaps in that time they did engage in meaningful soul searching. But regardless, it's clear in that time that they learned who Jesus is. We're certain that's true because of what Andrew does next. Verse 41, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah. John writes it this way because by the time his gospel was written, Simon Peter was much more well-known than was Andrew. But for this moment, Peter was simply Andrew's brother. And his brother had seen the Christ. By the work of the Spirit and at the invitation of Jesus himself, Andrew saw Jesus for who he really was, and he wanted his brother Simon to see Jesus too. It's relatable. It's something that we all long to do to bring those we love to Jesus. 
We want to point them, as John the Baptist did, to the Son of God, to the Lamb of God. We want the Spirit to open their eyes, and that's what Andrew wants here. After he spent the day with Jesus, he is fully convinced, and he wants his brother to be convinced as well. And so he brings him to him. What an introduction, right? This is when Jesus and Peter meet. Peter's story with Jesus will be wonderfully complicated. How about that description? There will be good times and bad times, moments of fear and weakness and moments of incredible faith and perseverance. And that whole story, everything that will become Peter's relationship with Christ, it starts here. And it doesn't start by some significant religious ceremony. It doesn't start by some bold theological proclamation. The whole story of Peter starts when one sinner who has found the Savior brings another to that Savior. Jesus always receives the ones who come to him that way. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John, You shall be called Cephas. Jesus received Simon by giving him a new name. From now on, he'll be called Peter, the rock. Now, we know the end of that story. We know how Jesus is going to use that name change in a powerful way. But don't for a moment think that Jesus is merely predicting Peter's future here. He doesn't look into Peter's future and then pick out a name that fits. No, Jesus looks at a man. He looks into Simon and he sees what he will make of that man. He gives Simon a new name because he gives Simon a new future. One scholar writes, the focus is much less on what this name change means for Peter than on the Jesus who knows people thoroughly and not only sees into them, but so calls them that he makes them into what he calls them to be. What have you brought into your relationship with the Savior? As you approach Jesus, what do you bring with you? Well, you bring the same as Peter, the same as me. We bring brokenness and fallenness and sin and the curse, and weakness, and inadequacy. And what's important is not what we bring, who and what we are before we come to Christ. What's important is what Christ will make out of us when we give ourselves entirely to him. This Simon is now Peter the rock upon which Jesus will build his church. It seems like nothing at this point. It is nothing at this point. But think about what it will become. The church of Jesus Christ today has members in at least 238 of the world's countries. The scriptures of the church of Jesus Christ are available in an understandable language to 80% or more of the world's population. We bring what seems like nothing. But what Jesus is looking at is not what's in our hands when we come to him. He's looking at the one to whom the hands belong and what he will make 
us to be. We'll see that in this gospel in an amazing way with Peter. Jesus will build his church with these disciples. Jesus will build his church. And it starts here with this tiny collection of people. Normal people. And on that front, nothing has changed, has it? Christ is still building up his church and glorifying his name by gathering to himself people. Imperfect, fallen, broken, weak, inadequate people who, the, who then he perfects for the day of his coming. You, dear member of the church, are a part of that work. It's his church. And if you're not a part of that work, why not? What are you seeking? If it's the words of eternal life, there is nowhere else you can go to find them. And if you seek that life in him, you will find it. That life, that slow work of perfection, of becoming what he is making us to be over a lifetime and into the next life, that's worked out here in the church. Here we get worked on by God. And here we work for God for one another. Work that is consistent with our gifts and abilities and weaknesses and limitations. But the work he will do through us and in us is not limited by any of those things. Because it's his work. He does that work. And as certainly as he has called you, he is doing that work in you even now. So stop feeling down about what you bring to Jesus. Stop making excuses about your limitations, your inadequacy for the task. Just keep being transformed into what he's making you to be. Serve him with joy and gladness, longing for the day of his coming when you will be made worthy of his kingdom. What can he do in someone like you? What can he do with someone like you? He says to you what he said to the disciples. Come and you will see.